Welcome to Talk Plus Water, the podcast associated with the Texas Plus Water newsletter, which provides timely information on the spectrum of Texas water issues, including science, policy, and law. Texas Plus Water is published jointly by the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University, the Texas Water Journal, and the Texas Water Resource Institute at Texas A&M University. You can sign up for Texas Plus Water by visiting texasplusWater.org slash newsletter. My name is Todd Botler, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the editor-in-chief of the Texas Water Journal, as well as your host for Texas Plus Water. This is podcast number nine. My guests today, multiple guests, are Aaron Keyes, who is the director of the Water Riot for the Austin Technology Incubator at the University of Texas at Austin, John Higley, who is Chief Executive Officer for Environmental Quality Operations, and Jim Brotherton, who is CEO of Hydroid. So this is going to be a presentation about uh, technology and water. And this is the first time I've done multiple people, and and we're all in the same space. We're not, you know, I don't have anybody on the phone, and so uh, we're going to see how this goes. So welcome, Aaron, John, and Jim. Thank you for being part of Texas Plus Water. And your Aaron is grinning. Did I mess up already, or did? No, and that was actually my fault. So Hydroid is Jim's first product. Um, I think his okay. LLC is H two O Optimize. Oh, H2O Optimize. H2O Optimize, yeah, that's right. Yep. So that was my fault. Oh, no, 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 no worries there. Um, So, Aaron, um, let's start out with a little bit about your background in water and how you became involved in water issues. Yeah, sure. Uh, Thanks for having us, Todd. So um, I actually spent 12 years in the electric utility industry. So I come at uh, water issues more from the energy side. Um, And I first started becoming more familiar with the water side whenever I was working for um, ITRON, which is a large corporation um, that works in the smart grid uh, for both gas and water and electricity. So that was my first foray into kind of um, the similar things that we focus on with respect to Water Riot, which is the IoT and data side, um, but not applied to the electric utility industry, but applied to the water utility industry. Um, I also was a researcher for Dr. Michael Weber, um, and Mm -hmm. he is a researcher at UT Austin um, who works a lot on energy, water, food nexus type issues. So my graduate research actually also incorporated some some water issues. Um, I did research on how to alleviate some grid constraints, some electric grid constraints, um, using water pumps. So it was uh, the coincidence of those two issues. Um, but I'm excited to be more on the water side now. I think there's been a lot of advances in the energy industry, um, and water is a little bit more nascent, um, and there's big opportunities um, in water to learn from what has happened um, in the electric utility industry. And so the Austin Technology Incubator is trying to help uh, startups, you know, kind of resolve or solve those issues that are associated with that. And so why don't you tell us about that? Because, you know, I, you know, ATI is just pretty unique, I think. Yeah, so ATI actually is the longest running um, uh, startup business incubator in the country. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary. 
Um, and we actually have two programs related to water. Uh, we have different verticals at ATI. Um, that's Austin Technology Incubator for short. Uh, all kind of related to different aspects of sustainability. We also have a healthcare vertical. Um, but we have an entire vertical dedicated to water. And uh, that is more widespread in terms of the water issues that these startups are addressing. Um, perfect example is John's company, um, Environmental Quality Operations, uh, which deals with zebra mussels. He'll be talking more about that. Um, Water Riot is kind of an adjacent program that was funded by the uh, Economic Development Administration, and it's more focused on data and IoT, IoT being the Internet of Things. So how do we connect different devices um, for different end goals? And um, so Water Riot uh, and the Water Vertical are both kind of these programs to help startups um, pretty much locally in Texas. We like to be in person with our companies because there's a lot of goodness that comes from that direct contact Um, and connecting them with uh, the right mentors in order to advance their, their ventures to the next level. Um, the right financiers, so whether that's, you know, family offices or VCs or, you know, corporate partners that might be interested in acquisitions, um, you know, other types of workshops and networking events um, that will connect them to the right people in the community. And we really try to focus on deep technology. So there's a lot of accelerators out there that are more programmatic, three months at a time. We're all running these startups through the same type of curriculum. And we work with um, these, quote, deep technology uh, startups a little bit longer because a lot of them are more, you know, primary scientific um, and engineering discoveries that take longer um, to get to market because they're more advanced in terms of product development or um, FDA approval or, you know, regulatory approval of some sort. Um, so we work with our startups for longer, maybe, you know, one to even two years at a time. Hmm. And just for the sake of full disclosure, um, I'm now, you know, part of the group of folks who are helping out with uh, mentoring and uh, and it's it's really fascinating to me I mean you know I've been in the water um, industry water uh, area for about 30 years but it was mostly uh, associated with public policy and so this is a kind of a new thing for me and I really really found it fascinating Uh, so um, how do you uh, you know, recruit your mentors, and and how do you bring these folks in to to help the uh, new startups associated with the Austin Technology Incubator? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some primary contacts, but it's also you know degrees of separation. It's just the network effect. Um, our director of the Austin Technology Incubator. Uh, has been a long time Austinite, and so is very well connected in the Austin community. Um, and it's everything from former startup founders that have been very successful themselves to um, lawyers in law firms that are focused on um, you know patent technology for startups um, to you know marketeers who are very. Uh, skilled in sales and marketing and that's something that a lot of our startup founders need a lot of help with as well so it's really kind of word of mouth right now it's a program that we licensed from um, MIT it's called Text VMS Um, originally MIT started it it's called um, the Venture Mentoring Service and it is focused on more team based mentoring you mentioned that you're on a team and instead of you know pairing one entrepreneur with one mentor 
there is a lot of, um, you know, quality type consulting that comes out of mentors bouncing ideas off of one another and kind of being in more of a group setting. Um, so it's growing. Uh, you mentioned how do we get them? You know, again, we start with, you start with 20, we start growing from there based on those mentors telling their friends who are interested in giving back to the community. Um, so, you know, there's folks who are also, ex-executives at large corporations that are just kind of looking for ways to help the next, you know, big thing. Great. And so, um, uh, in addition to recruiting mentors, uh, you know, the companies, I guess, the startups themselves, they apply to be part of the program. And like, I guess John and, and, and Jim did, they had to go through some kind of application process. Yep, exactly. Um, so we get a lot of inbound inquiries, but there's also all sorts of pitch competitions or you know um, entrepreneurs inside of universities. We serve both uh, UT as well as the community um, all across, across Texas. There are also folks who are doing research who are interested in commercializing their technologies. Um, so you know we go recruit folks outbound, but then um, we have an application on our website um, and we get tons of references as well. So what's your website? Well, let's make sure we get that here so that I know you um, are probably going to have to look it up. But uh, I want to make sure we mention that because there'll be people listening who are saying, hey, I'd like to try that out. Yep. So it's ati.utexas.edu. Right. And so the water riot. Uh, now explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, so that's more of an ecosystem development play. And what I mean by that is trying to get together all the different stakeholders um, in Texas who have an interest in um, the Internet of Things and data as it relates to water. And that can be anything from startups themselves to corporations to investors to universities to nonprofits. Um, we're actually in our third year. And, um, you know, everything from just putting workshops together where all of these people can convene to um, making personal connections between these folks if um, they have shared interest in something that's going on in Texas. Uh, but the whole goal is to uh, incubate and uh, demonstrate technologies with this IoT and data focus um, inside of the Texas water sector. Gotcha. And um, so some examples, I guess, of the kind of companies are part of the water riot um yeah so i mean uh ho optimize is a perfect example of both an incubator company um they are a member of the austin technology incubator but they also are a member of this ecosystem um that we're developing and you'll hear more from jim about his technology but it is a perfect example of a quote data focused company and an iot focused company within the water sector great great so um let's uh, go ahead and and uh, talk to our other guests here. First of all, John. Hi. How you doing, John? Good. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. And so, um, you know, I always start off with a question uh, about people's water backgrounds or how they got involved in, in water issues. So why don't, you, why don't we start with that? Well, um, I first got the idea for this is years and years ago, whenever zebra mussels had just come to Texas, so it's probably 2009, 2010, because people were complaining about it. Usually it takes about a year before they grow enough for people to start complaining. Anyway, so I was the senior director of R&D at a biopharma company uh, developing um, oncology products, so uh, cancer cures, essentially. And I was at a 
Christmas party on Promises Gets to Water. It was at a Christmas <laughs> party, and a family member of mine and my best friend were both complaining about zebra mussels. Uh, my best friend, because he has a lake house on Texoma, and mm-hmm. my uh, family member, because he... Uh, works in water utility uh, type stuff. And as the biologist there, I'm a molecular biologist by training, but still as the biologist there, I was pretty embarrassed that I didn't know what a zebra mussel was. So I went and did my uh, trick of, uh, for social anxiety at parties, and that's to go and look at uh, peer-reviewed journal articles. And I started going through EBSCO and PubMed and realizing, wow, there's a real need here for some of the technologies that we utilize in early cancer diagnostics, microbiome analytics, and uh, like smart drug biopharmaceutical stuff for use for those types of technologies in the environmental space. Um, so from that, I kind of have the idea for a company. Originally, I was just thinking of how to make a smart drug to just kill them. That's very hard to get funding for um, right out the gate. Uh, eventually, after I, um, I, I left that company to go work with Thermo Fisher, uh, and I was working with them to help get some products that they had uh, from diagnostic or you know, R&D products into the clinical field. And since I had done preclinical to clinical pipeline before, they brought me in to help with that. And I realized microbiome, early cancer diagnostics, we can start with a diagnostic platform and start doing kind of population dynamics, live versus dead, and really mapping um, in not just aquatic invasive species, but you can do that for endangered species as well. Mm. So then I get a little piddly grant, and then so about four years ago or so, and uh, that took about a year for me to, to finish up the research for, and then EQO came out of that about three years ago. And in the last uh, year or so is when we've really fully launched and started gaining some traction, and got an automated sampler that's really cool that gets installed out at places, and that's kind of how I got into the water world. So... Um, what are uh, kind of the issues around zebra mussels? What you know, I think I think some people listening will be familiar with them, especially if you live someplace where you know they've already arrived. But but there are other parts of the country where they have yet to make their presence known. Um, and so uh, you know, why are they a problem, and you know, where are they from? Yeah, so this is a bad '80s movie. They uh, showed up in the Great Lakes originally in the mid '80s. Uh, middle of the Red Scare, and they come from Russia. They're from the Black and Caspian Sea initially, so there are Russian invaders. It's Ivan Drago and zebra mussels. Um, and so anyway, so why are they so bad? Because, you know, one thing I hear is like, but they make the lake look really pretty. They do clear, clarify the lake, but that's not a good thing in this case at all. So one thing is that there are these super high-efficiency filter feeders. Uh, where they come from, there's not a lot of nutrients in the water, so they've kind of evolved to be to just be really efficient at filtering everything out that they possibly can. Um, so they show up in lakes, especially here in central Texas, where we have tons of calcium, so they don't really have any limitation on how many shells they can grow, and there's tons of nutrients in the water. They grow completely out of control. And so the, while the lake may look prettier as far as it being clear, what it also does is they'll eat all the primary food sources for all the kind of fish in the lake that live off of phytoplankton um, or small uh, uh, you know, zooplankton in the water column, and they will not eat any of the toxic algae. They just spit it right back out. So it becomes a perfect niche environment for toxic algae blooms to take place. Massive human health issue, problem for agriculture as well. Uh, they're also quite sharp, cut feet on them, not great there. And they cause the U.S. alone $7 billion worth of infrastructure damage annually um, because they grow on top of each other. They just completely clog things. So, uh, you know, I started 
learning a lot more about zebra mussels a few years ago when I began to work with endangered or likely to be listed as endangered mussels here in Central Texas. And those mussels, the native mussels, they have a different you know, life cycle, you know, an intermediate fish host and stuff. Uh, that's not the case with zebra mussels. Yeah, so we call them zebra mussels. They're actually the the, um, the genus is Drysena, uh, which is a what's uh, the, the proper term for them. They're a pseudo mussel. They have a very different um, biology than the kind of native Unionidae mussels that we have here in Texas. They don't burrow. They don't crawl around in the dirt. They have these little legs that come out. They have two proteins that interlock like a two-part epoxy essentially and they glue them to something and then they grow from there and they kind of uh, their method of, of reproduction is spray and pray it's just sperm eggs let's see what happens and they settle back down they can move a little bit as a villager once they stick there are cases of them getting dislodged and moving but they're totally different from native mussels they're um, the only thing that makes them mussels is they kind of look like mussels yeah. but the other problem with the native mussels is that they will grow on top of the native mussels shells to the point to where they'll cover the native mussels they they can't breathe. And um, yeah, like you mentioned, we have a number of native mussels here in Texas that are going to be listed very soon as endangered, um, and their zebra mussels make them even more at risk. So it's a, it's a pretty massive issue. And so there's a lot of um, concern around that cur- um, currently. And you know, we, we've reached out to a couple folks over at Texas A&M and TSU that we're um, going to be partnering with to, to work specifically on that problem. Good, good. And uh, so your technology, it could help water manager managers with their zebra mussel problems, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of do whole life cycle stuff. Uh, I'll kind of get into the why we're different from some of the other things. There's this big push in the industry right now to move towards uh, more what we call eDNA or environmental DNA. Um, the issue with that, though, is that that just looking at environmental DNA doesn't actually give the manager uh, really any actionable information. Uh, DNA exists in the water column for a very long period of time. A good friend of mine got his uh, finished his postdoc here at UT looking at ancient DNA out of Peru, like these tens of thousands of years old. So you can imagine it sticks around the water column for a bit too. Even if it's not associated with a particle, even if it's dissolved in the water, it does persist for quite some time. So when you're getting a DNA signal, all you really know is that it was there at some point in time. It doesn't mean that it's a lie. It could be something else ate one and pooped it out. It could be, you know, somebody had a dead one on their boat and brought it in. The DNA is the same. It sticks around the water column. So what we do differently is we do look at eDNA to establish trends over time. And it's a very useful tool for risk assessment and prevention. It's useful for that because you can see where they're coming in, where you're most likely to get something. But we also look at environmental RNA. And if we remember our biology 301 classes, um, you know, DNA is very stable molecule. That's the the blueprint. RNA is the message that you're sending to the contractor, right? And then that's a very unstable molecule. It breaks apart very fast, just like a piece of paper does. And then the proteins do all the work. That's kind of the, the contractor. So RNA, since it breaks down so quickly, is a great way, if you can stabilize that, you can take a snapshot of everything that's going on in that water. So that's what we're really interested in, because then we can turn and see, is it alive or dead? Is it responding to stress? Is it gonna be producing eggs sometime soon? Like, is it about to spawn? All of those, all of those uh, by intercepting those messages, essentially, we can kind of see what they're what they're doing. 
uh, that allows us to play not just in the early detection space, but also detect them early enough so you can knock out a population like what we did with TPWD last summer. And um, if you already have an infestation, you know we're the only ones that can really provide any kind of quality control to let you know if the treatments that you're using in your pipelines are effective or not. Because right now, you can dump all the chemical in there you want, or copper, or, or whatever it is that you know your weapon of choice. But to, but you're really not a way to tell if it's being effective and you're killing them or not. Some people like to use visual inspection. I play with these things a lot, man. It's hard to tell if they're alive or dead. You just start getting an incrustation that goes faster or slower, and that's not really determining if your if your chemical treatment is effective. We can provide real time mitigation support to aid in that. We're also actively working with uh, the Bureau of Reclamation, creating that smart drug that I originally wanted to do. Yeah. That's going forward now, so <laughs> we're, we're working on that. That's an ongoing R and D project. So your technology does a lot more than just say, hey, there's zebras here. Yeah. It tells you a lot about the population that a water manager would want to know if they're trying to figure out how do I respond. Yeah, if you want to have effective mitigation and you want to make sure that what happens, uh, well, the, uh, there have been some, some issues in the past where you know improper mitigation leads to either massive costs for replacement um, or really bad outcomes as far as um, taste and smell and whatnot like we had here in Austin and back in February. Um, that Those are things that can happen just, and, and it's not... It's not like it's anybody's really fault. It's just that the current technologies, uh, there's not a way to avoid that um, if, it, it, you know, it, with what's available outside of what we're offering. So um, how has ATI and the Water Riot helped EQO during its developmental phase? How's, you know, kind of going back to um, what Aaron told us, um, you know, what's been the benefit uh, to EQO? Uh, it's massive. So we started out, um, we got involved with ATI through um, our laboratory space. Uh, we are, we're housed at the Austin Bioscience Incubator, which is at the um, Austin Community College Highland Campus. They have an amazing space there uh, with wet labs and, um, and millions of dollars worth of equipment, and it's extremely affordable. Um, so we started there, we were, I think their first company. And um, while we were there, I was meeting with uh, Cindy Walker-Peach, who I actually used to work with at Ambion years ago, back in my uh, biotech, you know, traditional biotech days. And she had recommended that we do something called the SEAL program, the, and which UT puts on uh, in association with ATI. And SEAL is a startup accelerator that's kind of intensive, you know, uh, hey, smart guys at the university or wherever you've developed some cool new product, is that marketable? Is this a real company? And then you kind of take an intense uh, summer MBA course, essentially, on um, technology commercialization. And at the end of that thing, you say, yes, we're a company, or no, we're not. Uh, we came out of that saying, yeah, this is a real thing. We can really do this. And then it was not long after that that we were approached by um, Mitch Jacobson, who's, uh, who runs ATI, to uh, join formally on um, to with ATI. Uh, Austin Bioscience Incubator, where we're housed, has a close relationship with ATI as well, which is why I got to talk to Cindy and Lisa and some of the other people at ATI who come over and basically they just show up and allow office hours for the companies there to come in there and pick their brain and say, you know, what am I doing? What should I do? And, and all of those kind of things. So that's kind of our journey to ATI. And since then, we've done a couple other accelerators. We won Mass Challenges first Texas cohort, um, got $100,000 out of them, and we're part of Capital Factory now. Yeah. So this is a perfect example of the fact that, you know, we get 
references from a variety of partners throughout Austin as well as nationally and the incubator the incubator companies that we have um, are very welcome to participate in other programs simultaneously um, knowing that there are different needs and a lot of incubators and accelerators can fill um, some needs you know better than us and vice versa so we really encourage our customer custom companies to be as involved as possible um, you know beyond just our own program and so um, I mean, living in Austin, you know, people know a lot more about zebra mussels now than they did about a year ago. Yeah. And so um, I imagine that there are a lot of other cities that are kind of, I guess, you know, maybe in the path of where the zebra mussels are spreading that that might see that, um, you know, technology like yours might be really useful to them. Um, but uh, uh, I guess, you know, that's something you have to get people thinking proactively. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the issue. I mean, yes, we do play in the whole life cycle the, um, from prevention to mitigation. However, stopping the spread, you know, it's it very similar with cancer. Um, early detection is cure is the thing that we used to always say in uh, cancer diagnostic development. And this is the same thing. Early detection is cure. Um, we've caught these things early enough in places and been able to wipe them out. Colorado has seven lakes that they consider infested. They have zero infested lakes right now. These, this is, there are ways to do this. If you catch it early and you're proactive, you will save yourself millions of dollars down the road. Um, so, you know, there are... There are towns and cities in Texas and in the West that I'm that we're very concerned about. Um, outside of Texas, you know, Montana, Idaho are a big thing. Um, just thing I like to tell people so they understand where they're most likely to show up next. The favorite riverway of these things has been the I-35 corridor. Um, that's the way that they spread. Uh, they do. They will go downstream and that kind of thing. People are watching that. But the, if you look at where they've come through, it's I thirty and I thirty five, and it's pretty. It's pretty clear and direct when you watch them year after year that I thirty five is their is their favorite riverway. The uh, people's boats, yeah, in the back yeah. trailers going from one lake to the other. Yeah, clean, drain, dry. And the yeah. big thing is, man, those wakeboard boats. They they carry on a ballast so they can throw a bigger wake which is a lot of fun. However, that's essentially a traveling aquarium. Yeah. Um, those are, and there's not a great way to drain those. So uh, if you own a wakeboard boat, I encourage you mightily to call Parks and Wildlife and ask about the best practices and procedures for how to you know, utilize your boat if you want to take it to a lake that you're unfamiliar with. But it's, it can be, it's almost in some ways, uh, I mean, it seems in many ways it's so hard to like stop the spread of them when individuals can transport them around so easily and you yeah. can't miss anybody really is. who's got a boat. You know, somebody, one person doesn't really, you know, um, follow the protocols. And There's know. a little hope in there, though. So usually these things take, you have to introduce them a few times before the population will really take off. Um, and some of that's just because, you know, they're still on the boat. So they have to be kind of spawning when they hit, and then they also have to have those sperms and egg come together when they hit. And even then, that first generation likely won't turn into a full population unless you bring in more and more each time. Okay. And the reason for that, part of it is, um, since you, know, you think about how they kind of cluster and how I stand, they kind of spray and pray for how they breed. So that means that in those clusters, they're all pretty close to really closely related. So those small, this is how Colorado got rid of them, those small populations will essentially inbreed themselves to death. 
they, um, they when you have low genetic diversity in a group, they any kind of selection pressure against that group is more likely to wipe it out. In um, ecology, essentially. Diversity is the strongest thing you can do to protect your population. Um, these guys are a bunch of brothers and sisters mating with each other. So they will crash their own populations if you don't introduce new ones consistent, if you don't continue to introduce them. So it doesn't take just one boat. It can, but that's very rare. So it's kind of like the more you can talk about it, the more like this, this problem can be pushed down. Colorado's done it effectively, and Texas is trying real hard. So that's really interesting to know because when I was, um, you know, part of the group of water managers who were meeting a few years ago trying to figure out what to do, we were under the impression it was something like that, you know, one introduction and you're kind of sunk. So it's good to know it's more complicated than that. <laughs> so let's go ahead and turn to Jim. So Jim, you've been very patient uh, waiting uh, to talk about... Uh, your technology, but let's let's start off with um, a little bit about yourself and your background in water. Uh, sure. So I've, I've actually got a long background in technology, and my introduction to water was uh, a close friend of mine had a uh, ranch house that he went to visit that he hadn't been there for a while, and he had a new lake um, pond on his property, and uh, his water well had busted a pipe and literally flooded enough to create an above ground lake. So knowing I, I have a technology background and some experience in startups, uh, we got together and started working on a solution to um, how we can do remote reporting and monitoring of, um, you know, second homes, that kind of thing. And that led into what we're doing today. Um, so other background information on that is that I did some stints in the oil field industry uh, and was building ultrasonic tools and wanted to see if we could apply that technology to flooding because I'm down in San Marcos. We've been through a couple of floods oh, yeah. uh, over the past few years. I had lots of folks uh, that are close to me affected by that. So interested in seeing if we could use that technology to do early flood warnings. So we have that in plan as well, but we started with water distribution um, as our first product, which is the Hydroid product. So why don't you tell us about uh, that product? Sure. Um, Hydroid is a smart water meter, so it's uh, very similar if you're familiar with Nest. Um, it's very similar to the Nest thermostat that way. Uh, it's loaded with sensors. Uh, it's to be uh, placed at the end of the pipe, so it's not a municipality, a municipality distribution device. It's actually on uh, the uh, demand side, the consumer side, uh, but it's loaded with sensors like uh, pressure sensors and water temperature, air temperature, humidity, uh, that type of thing, as well as a high-resolution ultrasonic sensor. So we have real high-resolution water flow analysis, so we can give you real-time uh, daily totals, weekly, monthly, uh, which allows you to baseline your water consumption, where you can start monitoring it, managing it, and ultimately conserving water is the goal. We send all this data up to the cloud so that you can interact with it with a cloud dashboard uh, or to your mobile phone. And integrated uh, in, the, in the hardware is a valve, so you can literally uh, receive a alert uh, from us from either a leak alert or busted pipe, that kind of thing, freeze alert, and, and do something about it and shut the valve to prevent further damage. Or oh, loss. so you, the app on your phone would tell you you get a water problem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. I can I tell you what, since uh, every house my family has owned has had a you know water heater that, you know, the bottom of it rusted out and flooded the floor below or uh, a 
eight. We're going to get you for doing that, John. <laughs> or a, or a, that's all right. That's all right. Or or a washing machine or a pipe that busted out right. of Montana. A pipe that busted during the winter, and you know it, we didn't know for for hours or days. You know, in one case, and so you know, I'd love to have something like this. So. I'd get some kind of immediate notice. Yeah, right. You know, uh, in, as far as insurance and leaks, you know, uh, water damage from leaks is the third highest claim for insurance. And over the past 10 years, the average um, the average cost is about $10,000. So it's a, a real problem. And most people actually, it's not that we're irresponsible water users. It's most of us just have no idea. The technology out there today doesn't really give us good leak detection uh, or even, you know, management of your water yet. So I think there's a lot of advancements that we can help in um, creating water awareness so that people can understand what their water consumptions look like, where they waste water, and they can have an effect on that water, whether it's you're in a municipality, whether you're on a water well, you know, for all of our aquifer systems here that we all now, after the drought that we've been through recently, I think we're much more aware um, of that. And so this is kind of where this this product plays. And so I can imagine, in, in addition to, you know, the, the reasons uh, you know, related to conservation, that there's actually a pretty significant financial incentive. You know, going forward, you're going to see more and more rain increases uh, for for water and for in, in municipalities. And so, this is a way to to cut down on your use and save some money. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because a lot of conversations that we have, um, if you're a homeowner, uh, prices seem to be, you know, some of, in my opinion, artificially low for what they could right. be. Um, if you're a business and you're a high water consumer, or if you're an apartment or a condominium, uh, you are in the highest water tier and your water prices are not cheap. And it just so happens that if you're an individual homeowner, you're generally floating around the lowest pricing for water. So it doesn't feel that expensive to you. But but for a business, it becomes a very expensive proposition. A leak, a running toilet, that kind of thing um, can affect your bill drastically. A uh, restaurant owner I talked to said that uh, just a leaky toilet uh, will cost him $600. Uh, and that's right out of his bottom line. So it is hard cost for them. You know, There's one going off right now in the uh, room next to us. I have to see. I walked in there and I said, who I call? I, you know, <laughs> I can't get this thing to stop running. Um, so uh, tell us about how uh, the awesome technology incubator and Water Riot have helped you with your your technology. Yeah, they do things a lot differently than other um, than other incubators, accelerators, and uh, um, as Aaron was saying earlier, you know, this long relationship is absolutely really cru- crucial. Uh, I also went through the SEAL program. I don't think we were in the same one, though. Were we? No. Uh, yeah, so I went through the SEAL program. Uh, really helpful, uh, but one thing I have to say is really different is most of these accelerators uh, do this speed dating thing, through what most of them call office hours kind of technology. Uh, kind of meetings and it's 20 to 30 minute meetings with mentors and uh, what what ATI really does differently is bring in um, experts in what you do people that have done this kind of thing and you sit with them as long as you need to and uh, basically we meet uh, about every month and we go through really hard problems and discussions for for with a team of people that have been through these issues and they take the time and follow up and so you build this relationship with people that are they're intimately involved uh, to support 
support you over this longer period of time. And I just haven't seen anybody else that does something like that. And the difference is, um, you know, immeasurable. It's uh, very valuable to us. So thanks, Jim. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I agree with all that too. <laughs> and they're not reading from scripts. Um, so you know, talking about water conservation more broadly, you know, I've had the opportunity to be involved with uh, water use in various parts of the state, and have seen how in some of the major cities it was close to 300 gallons per capita per day, and has come down by half or more, and you know, what I always find interesting is, um, you know, water managers used to talk about, well, you know, you, there's not much you can do about that, or there's not really that much room to, to, to improve efficiency, but it just seems like there's, there's ever more room. And I, I remember someone telling me, um, oh, you know, you can't go below 100 gallons per person per day. That's, that's less than they have available in you know some desert in Africa right right and I was like okay is that right and so you know somebody recently told me you know that they're actually trying to get their their you know their cities looking at getting it below 100 to get like 90 or something I mean it seems like keep finding there's more and more you know, to conserve there. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm right there with you. We actually have an example of that. Uh, so one one of our users is uh, has 39,000 gallons of rain catchment. So all their water is above ground. And they know they have a finite source, basically, where they know how much they have that they could use. And so they uh, are using Hydroid to create a water budget. And so they, sh- they were shooting for 100 gallons. It's a family of four, 2,500 square foot homes, something like this, acreage of property. And they, they are hitting under uh, 100 gallons of water a day. Uh, and, you know, what it, what it really did for them is give them a sense of confidence because they had no other way to measure how much water they were using at all. So now that they know, they know that they're on target. So if they slip once in a while, that it's okay, but they have real-time readings for it. So it's absolutely possible. I don't do that at my house. I have a horse and dogs and cats and chickens and a container garden. And we see some of the things that are um, really interesting about our own water use where we started learning how to conserve water better. And that's things like just having above-ground garden and our watering practices. We could water this this garden. It would it would uh, use 400 gallons of water just to water and water our garden. And it was amazing to us. I think people don't actually really generally understand how much water they put on their grass. Uh, I think that's a good place for conservation as well as the gardens or any of their uh, shrubs and bushes. And so we put into a new practice where we started uh, working on what our mulching practice was so that we could start bringing down how frequently we, we did that watering schedule. And I think that by having that kind of data and recognizing that, that we could move into a better practice of uh, water use for, you know, something we enjoy to do because, you know, it's the most expensive tomato you'll ever eat, you know, when you grow your own. So uh, anyways, we've done a better job of conserving water, you know, just personally. And so I, it's interesting to me that you, we're not only just talking about, um, you know, people having it um, for their house and they're connected up to the municipal system, but for groundwater well owners and for people who have rain catchment systems, I mean, it's, a, it's really a broader uh, potential for use than I had kind of thought of. Yeah, we, we designed it that way as well. Uh, we've had some interesting, interesting conversations with ranchers 
where their big fear is actually that water doesn't get distributed across their property uh-huh. and that they don't have the rain. So we built some features into the technology so that we could send, uh, connect an external antenna and send it across, you know, miles, the data, so that they can make sure that their cattle are getting water. Um, because they have no idea. They have to drive out there to see if the float system is working. If it doesn't, they, they could lose cattle. So we had that in mind when we designed the tech. Uh, I have a water well. We designed around how the water well would be so we can get range and flow and that kind of thing um, with with the, the battery operated, which other folks aren't doing. We're doing solar. It can be operated on solar as well and, and rain catchment. So uh, there's a lot of things that are built into it so that we can um, offer this diversity to, to people that are interested in whatever they're... You know, water has this thing where... Um, you know, it's pervasive. So there's a lot of different uses that people will dream up with when they can get some data on how they're using water or manage or control their water. So we try to account for a lot of that. So let's just kind of throw this open for everybody. Um, and I just want to kind of uh, go back to you, Aaron. You know, when I listen to uh, John and, and Jim talk about their technologies, I mean, really at the heart of it, it's like, Information like we we're getting information about what's in the water column and what it might be doing, or we're getting more information about how we're using our water. Yep. And and so those things lead to really behavioral change, right? I mean, you know, you know, hey, I'm not going to maybe leave my lawn sprinkler going as long, or um, I could do this to reduce my water use at home, or yeah, you know, maybe we ought to be thinking about. Um, checking boats when they're coming in or encouraging people to take their responsibility on of, of making sure that they don't uh, contaminate one body of water uh, that isn't contaminated yet with zebra mussels and and so but a lot of it kind of underlying is you know how we're, we're making information more easily available and exchanging it and like that's a lot of your te- would you say a lot of the technologies that a- ATI is involved with are really about about just kind of more information exchange, you know, making it more readily available or easier for, for consumers to figure out what, what they're doing? That is definitely an underlying theme. Uh, it can also be a material science breakthrough for, you know, a battery, or it can be designing a better way to purify water. Um, so it really, like, runs the gamut, but as I mentioned with Water Riot, that is kind of the underlying theme is this information gathering because, to your point, if you don't know what's happening, you can't change it, and you don't even know if it should be changed. Um, so I think that was a great kind of theme that you pulled between these two, you know, even though um, the DNA and RNA uh, sounds like more of a biotech advance, at the very heart of it, it is getting more information. Yeah, it's, that's, you know, some of our biggest value is to be able to say, Okay, these are your hotspots so you can manage your time and money more effectively uh, to prevent for prevention or, you know, turn up the chemical treatment, turn down the chemical treatment based on what we can say. And so we can we end up saving customers money on that end. But it's information is absolutely is powerful without information and data. You're it's a black box and you're just guessing. And I think that's something Jim and I are both working on pretty hard is to try and provide actionable information. Uh, like I was saying with the eDNA stuff, knowing if it's there or not doesn't tell you anything. If it's not actionable information, it's not useful information. And so that's kind of uh, certainly our goal is to provide actionable, useful information that can be used in managerial decisions. Yeah, I mentioned that a lot of what ATI does is you know sustainability. I don't want that to be construed as, you know, 
something that just deals with water conservation, for example, or energy conservation. That can just mean making better decisions about the resources that you have. And that can span a variety of different verticals or a variety of different arenas. Um, You know, in the oil and gas industry, it could be making sure that you're able to, um, you know, extract more efficiently or being able to use water more effectively or, you know, be sure that you can desalinate the water on the back end in order to put it back into operations. So um, it's it's really about making sure that we're doing things as smart as possible, and a lot of a lot of that um, you know comes from technology advances, and that's why we're really focused on deep technology. Is how can we use technology in order to do what we currently do better, or just make stepwise um, changes in how we do things altogether if that's the better direction to go. I, I remember uh, one, the first meeting I went to um, that ATI held, um, you know, it was a lunch meeting and, you know, all the mentors were invited and, and it was a company that uh, was working on a technology to use nano bubbles to clean produce instead of, you know, having to use as much water that they had to like once through yep. um, to to clean the vegetables and I was thinking okay you know in California where you're growing a lot of this is for lettuce where you're growing a lot of lettuce and you're you know you might be concerned about E. coli and you know things like that that this technology was trying to get at um, you know that's that's also um, a, not only kind of an agricultural play but it's also a municipal and industrial play because they're looking for ways to you know reduce the amount of water they're using, which a lot goes for irrigation and free some of that out for some other users, or allow irrigators to do that. I mean, that's, if you look at um, the Edwards Oxford, um, you know, one of the big solutions there was, uh, you know, creating a market and, um, you know, allowing the irrigators who'd be given water rights to, to take some of those water rights and lease them or sell them uh, for municipal or industrial users um, or to other ag users and uh, to, you know, use that in part to fund, you know, more conservation technology so they could, uh, like, stretch their ag production. And so, you know, a lot of it became, uh, you know, a, a process of, you know, now we're looking at how we use our water and we're determining we can, we can uh, you know, uh, produce the type of crops that we need with this amount using more efficient technologies. And here we have more that we could lease or sell to someone else. And so it becomes almost kind of a, a business where you're not only, for example, you know, a farmer might not only be uh, you know, rate, uh, producing commodities, but they're also in the water business to some extent. And so, you know, it's just kind of... There's interplays between all of these verticals, for sure. You can cross-list many of the companies in the incubator um, in, ver- in a variety of different verticals, either energy or water companies or circular economy, economy companies. Um, they all kind of have their tendrils in a variety of different uh different aspects of what we do, um, which gets back to the the nexus conversation. Um, Energy, water, food, mobility, uh, there's just a lot of externalities that kind of touch each one of those verticals. Great. Well, um, boy, I love this. This has been fun to talk to you all about water and technology. Um, And uh, before before we wrap up, anybody else have any questions or anything they want to add? 
Thank no, you. just thanks for thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Yep. yep. And mm-hmm. if you have any more questions, uh, feel free to reach out to ATI oh. through um, our website or um, Aaron Keys is my name. Uh, e K E Y S at ATI utexas.edu and same for these guys I'll let them yeah, I, do I, their we should plug our pluggables um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Eco's website is uh, eqo.life eqo.life there's no .com or .life um, anyway uh, my name's John Higley my email is john j-o-h-n dot higley h-i-g-l-e-y at eqo.life and feel free to reach out with anything you'd like to know I'll be playing at clubs and colleges across the country just kidding <laughs> Um, yeah. You know, take your zebra muscles on the road. Yeah, exactly. That's not yeah. a good idea. Some kind of, yeah. no, not allowed to do that. That's a fine. That's some kind of 1800s grifter. No, not so much. Yeah. Jim? Uh, sure, Jim. Uh, so the website is hydroidmeter.com. Uh, you can reach me at jim at hydroidmeter.com. So that's easy enough. Um, and full name is Jim Brotherton. So please, yeah, if you have any questions or are looking for uh, some trials or installations or uh, give us a call, we'll willing to try anything. And how do you spell hydroid real quick, just in case? Yeah, H-Y-D-R-O-I-D. Gotcha. All right, so... This has been Talk Plus Water, uh, the podcast associated with the Texas Plus Water newsletter, which provides timely information on the spectrum of Texas water issues, including science, policy, and law. Texas Plus Water is published jointly by the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University, the Texas Water Journal, and the Texas Water Resource Institute at Texas A&M University. You can sign up for Texas Plus Water by visiting texasplusWater.org slash newsletter. My name is Todd Bottler, the host of Texas Plus Water. Let's talk water again soon.